The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we consider this text and, and really how relevant is, um, how, how relevant these words are to downtown church. So let's pray together. God, you're good. And what you do is good all the time. Um, God, we don't even know the, a small fraction of what you're up to in our lives, in this church, in this city, in this world. Uh, God, we think we, we have such big vision and we're so on board with what you're doing, but oh, how foolish we can become, how arrogant and self-righteous and how we think in our serving of you that we're doing it right by the simple fact that we can look around and see how others are doing it so wrong. And we feel good about us because we can feel bad about others and we can point out their sin all the while uh, hiding behind our own arrogance and not seeing our own, uh, the reality of our own sin and the reality of how much we need you. So God, this morning, I pray that you would break through. I pray that you would tear down the smoke screens, that you would tear down the fear and the, um, the, the arrogance and the self-righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would get to our hearts today to show us how high and wide and deep and long is your love for your people. Oh God, help us to see how settled we are with just a drop of your love when you are willing to open the floodgates of glory that our sin might be dissipated, the sins of the flesh and our lives might be genuinely transformed day after day through faith in a gospel that is present and powerful in a Jesus that is glorious, more glorious and beautiful than any of our earthly goals any of our earthly dreams or hopes, oh God, would you expose to us this morning how pathetic our desires are, how short-sighted, how, how small compared to the God that you are and the God you want us to proclaim and the God that you want us to live out of. Father, would you do that work among us today? No preacher can do that. We can't do it for ourselves. You must come by your spirit through your power to convince the unconvinced and to awaken the convinced. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the glorious wonder of the gospel, that we might be empowered to be the people of God, that we might be empowered to lay our lives down out of love and gratitude, not out of duty and self-righteous well, self-righteousness. God, do that among us and do it for us. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Anybody in here um, received their flu shot yet? All right, we got a, flu, a few flu shot people. I did, apparently too early. I got my flu shot this year, then I was uh, hanging out with a friend of mine who's a doctor, and, I, and, and he said, oh, I'll wait till November to get my flu shot so because the real flu season is really in, it lasts into the spring and uh, so your flu shot will probably be you know done and over with the effectiveness of it by the spring I'm like oh great you know um, but do you know how a flu shot works it's really counterintuitive you put when, when you get a flu shot you're putting uh, tiny amounts of flu 
uh, the flu virus into your system so that after about two weeks, your immunity, you build up an immunity to the flu. So you can't get the flu because you already got the flu. And as I read Colossians, and I really read uh, the New Testament, I see that that is the condition for most of us. And I believe that's the condition of the believers in Colossae. They have just enough of the gospel where they can't get the whole thing. They got just enough vaccine that they can't catch the whole gospel. They are, they are inoculated, if you will, to the effects of the true gospel. They have a very small gospel that keeps them from getting the whole thing. And dear friends, that is our problem because most of us view the gospel as the first step and then it's time to graduate. It's junior college, it's elementary, it's kindergarten, but we really want to go to high school. And friends, the gospel, it's insane when we think like that, and we all do, because there is no way that any of us at any moment in our Christian lives can get to the point at which we are containing the full knowledge of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. You never get there. And, 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 and what's dangerous is the fact that we can do the Christian life without the gospel But it's not really the Christian life. You see, we can do justice without the gospel, but subtly we're really growing and feeding our flesh and how good we are for doing justice. And we find ourselves being critical, maybe subtle, maybe not so subtle, about those around us that aren't doing justice like we are. We can do our relationships without the gospel. But if anybody that's been married for more than five minutes, you understand that if you try to do marriage without the gospel, you begin easily to feel better about you than you do about your spouse. You see, the gospel comes in and it humbles us and it empowers us to love. And if you don't do that, what do you have? You can do your work. You can go to work tomorrow morning or tonight or whenever you work. And you can do it without the gospel. But you're either going to grow in pride about how good you are at your work, how much money you make, or or that that next promotion and the job performance that, you know, review that you get, or you're going to be so burnt out that you're critical of everybody and you hate everybody. You're either going to feel better than everybody or worse than everybody and worse about everybody. If you're doing your work without the gospel, you can do downtown church without the gospel, but you're going to burn out. You're going to burn out when the preacher or the leaders or the people around you don't lift up your culture, don't represent your race, don't represent your interest. You're going to burn out because you're going to feel left out and your heart is going to grow resentment and you're finally just going to leave. See, you can do it, but you're not really doing it. And the the gospel is not everything, but it is the foundation of everything. And without that foundation, what comes out is unhealthy and bad. And that is what Paul is, is telling the church. Jesus must be your enough. 
Jesus must be the period, the, the, the exclamation point, the everything to your life. His gospel must be the operating factor of your life. The good news of the gospel is it's Jesus plus nothing equals the acceptance and love of God, the very love that you were created for. You see, friends, love is what you want more than anything. It's what the Colossians wanted. They wanted respect. They wanted to be, to be recognized. They wanted to feel important. But those things are false loves for the real love that only God can give us. And so this morning, we have to look at this and see what Paul is getting at. We don't need to run to self-manipulated Christianity. We just need to take Jesus for who he is and rest in his grace and see his power at work in our weakness exploding in our lives. That's what we need to be at downtown church. It's the only way that downtown church is going to be more than a photo op. It's the only way that downtown church is going to be more than showing up here in this room together in all of our diversity of age and race and culture and interest and politics and all that. It's the only way that it's going to be authentic is if the gospel is the genuine foundation of each of our lives. So how do we do it? First of all, we have to see the otherworldly nature of grace. We have to see the other, that it is out of this world, but it's out of a world that we should be living out of. We need to be living into this world out of the reality of the otherworldly nature of grace. Kanye West, of all people, I think made this point very clearly. I don't know if you saw his, um, uh, not really, I guess it was an interview with James Corden. Um, on, uh, what, what, what's it called? Uh, air pool. They call it air pool karaoke. Typically, James Corden is in the car with, you know, another singer, in a car with another singer, but he got on... Uh, Kanye West's uh, plane, um, and he was sitting by Kanye West and, and surrounded by his 100-voice choir, and he got to a point where he said, okay, James Corden said this to Kanye, he said, he said you know, people are not going to buy this change in your life. H how do you respond to that? And he said this, he said, he said, James, would you agree that when you go to sleep, you're asleep? And when you wake up, you woke up. Would you agree that those are two different states? And James Corden said, yeah. And he said, what I'm talking about is an awakening. What, have I, what I've experienced is an awakening. Those that, those that are asleep, those that have yet to be awakened are, are, are the walking dead. But what I'm talking about is coming alive. And he was dead on in this apologetic <laughs> with, with James Gordon of, of calling him to wake up too. Because that's what Christianity is. That's how uh, radical it is. That's what being born again is all about. It's being awakened from the deadness of looking to one's own works and hustle to be right before God in the world and depending on the works and hustle of Jesus our Savior. And, and, and Kanye West is one who understands it because he undoubtedly is a perfectionist. 
And that perfectionism ended him up in a mental hospital. He had a nervous breakdown. He talked about it. And he said it was in that, nervous, in that hospital that he began to read the Bible. And he began to see another way. He began to see there was, there was an answer to the pressures of perfectionism. There was an answer to this whole system of I do well, then I'm applauded kind of living. I do bad, I'm rejected. And that's precisely the, the way that the world operates, and it's how our flesh wants to operate. This is the issue in Colossae. The Jewish false teachers in Colossae were saying you had to believe in Jesus and obey the ceremonial laws in order to get God's acceptance. And Paul writes, and he doesn't endorse this approach, but he rejects it wholeheartedly. He says this, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, he is pointing to something that has happened. The past tense, if with Christ you died, something has happened. Past tense, D Jesus didn't live and die to rise and live, die, and rise to make something possible, but to make something certain. That's what has to be central focus of our hearts and lives. It's not that we are working, working, working in hopes of getting um, God's, God's pleasure and his acceptance. But Jesus has come in the flesh. That's why we love Advent. Can't wait to preach uh, the incarnation of Jesus because he is the only God that took on flesh, that didn't reject our flesh. He lived under the law for us that we might be freed from the demands of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. And this means everything for us. This means you don't have to, nor can you pay for your sins. And if you try to pay for your sins, then Christianity doesn't work. You don't get the love you want when you try to pay for what Christ has already paid for. Anybody watch Bluff City Law? I love those kind of shows. Uh, Law and Order, it's in about its 150th season. I think I've seen them all. I just keep re-watching. I love the marathon. In Bluff City Law, it's basically a group of lawyers who are, you know, each episode is finding an, um, an issue of injustice, and um, the law firm takes it on, builds their case, and at the end, the verdict is given. Well, one of the um, episodes, there was a man who... Um, gave a false testimony. He, he agreed to a crime that he did not commit because he was being railroaded and uh, he knew he was going to be thrown in jail even though he was innocent. And so in order to, um, uh, basically in order to free his wife and his children in order that they can just kind of write him off, he agreed that, that he killed this person in this horrible way. Um, but his, but the law firm um, of Bluff City Law um, took on this case and realized he was really innocent and they fought it. And, um, and they proved him, you know, the, the whole episode builds up to the end and the verdict is read and the judge says, you are declared innocent. You, and, and she looks at the bailiff, take the chains off of him and let him go. Yes. Isn't that beautiful? And that's the verdict we have. And when, when we take that verdict... And we start adding all these rules and laws. Okay, yeah, okay. God said I, I, I could be let go. But now I've got to prove how good I am. Now I've got to prove how holy I am. Now I've got to prove how righteous I am. When we do that, we are, we're still living under the, um, the opinion of a lower court when the Supreme Court has already rendered a judgment. 
And, and it, it's, 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 it gets you nowhere. It sounds so right. It sounds like, well, how could God be mad at me for trying to be more holy? But because the only way, you, you are belittling the, the depth and the ugliness of your sinfulness. Your goodness, you don't have the power to create enough goodness to cover your badness. Those scales don't balance, but there's one that has come that has already done it for you. He has balanced those scales. How? By dying for us. See, that's what Jesus has done. He has, what, what does it mean that, um, that we have died with Christ? Jesus' death was not of natural causes. Jesus' death was uh, the result of a cosmic judgment. It was Jesus in place of you. He gets what you deserve that we might get what he deserves. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the otherworldliness of the gospel. That nothing else in life works like that. I cheat and cheat and cheat and cheat on my wife. She's gone. I mean, nothing. even the Bible says you can be gone. Nothing works like that except for the gospel. And it's beautiful. Jesus died. He took the punishment that we deserve. We not only get our guilt taken away, though, through the death of Jesus, but we also get God's love and acceptance. Paul picks up on this in Galatians 4. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved. And here's this phrase again. We're going to catch it in a minute. I've never noticed this phrase, but it, it's happened. Here's twice. Uh, first in Colossians 2.20. Um, and now in, in Galatians 4, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Oh, obey the law. No, Abba, Father, praise God for all that you've done for me. So you are no longer a slave to living after your little laws, but you're a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. Your future is determined. You have to work for nothing there is nothing you can do to make your position before God and your standing before God any better than it already is because it is as good as it gets through Jesus. You have already been declared righteous because Jesus obeyed the law in your place. Now, dear friends, we have to live out of that because everybody, many people around you are going to tell you, you are unrighteous. Your, your life, the circumstances of your life. Oh, I deserve what I get. Oh, but God. You see, God is loving you. He's dancing over you right now with joy. Of course, not because of your sin, but because Jesus took care of your sin. That is his heart towards you. That is his opinion of you. you, did you, did you we all sang it. If you were singing, we talked about the flood of Emmanuel's well. It's not a speck. We're not, oh, there's a speck. Let's all fight for it. It's the flood 
Oh, I love those words. Maybe it just washed over me this morning, maybe because I was preaching this passage. But the flood of Emmanuel's well, it's overflowing. It's coming. I can't outsend it. My dirt doesn't, doesn't push it back. It is the flood washing over me. And friends, I need a flood. I don't need a speck. And you don't either. You need a flood. And there's a flood. And his name is Jesus. His blood flows over you that you might have life, that you might have life. And how dare we then try to go back to the old way of living? But that's what it is. These, these elementary principles of the world or these elemental spirits of the world. Why, if you've died with Christ, are you still living under the elemental spirits of the world? What is he talking about? I, I looked up, uh, I did some word studies here. And um, this phrase, elementary principles or elemental spirits is translated, um, here's the meaning of it, of or related to or being an element, specifically existing as an uncombined chemical element. What Paul is talking about, what he's referring to is that there is a law in this world that you get what you deserve. That's what we feel. That's why we run to, that's why we want to run to the law to try to clean ourselves up in hopes that God loves us. But what, what Paul is saying is the law of the world has been obliterated through Jesus Christ. This law is gone because grace has come in. Jesus has lived under the law to explode its power that, is, that will utterly curse you and, and sink you. And this is your new woke truth, if you will. All right. You have died to the ways of this world. Do, our, do we still sin? Yes. Do our sins convict us? Yes. But Jesus pleads our case. So what is it this morning? How do you need to believe the love of God for you specifically? This is the danger. This is what we are inoculated from. This is what we are vaccinated from is from saying, okay, God's love. I can believe it for my wife. I can believe it for my children. I can believe it for my church. But can I believe it for me? Jesus said, that's the only reason I did it. So that you, every chair in this room, every person, so that you can be overcome by his love. So that you can look at the condemnation that you are putting on yourself or others around you are putting on you and you can say, no, I am a living child of God. I'm adopted. I was known before the foundation of the earth. He knew exactly all my sins. We sang that too. I loved it. We kept singing it and I love it. He knew the depths of my sin and he loves me. Because he's dealt with my sin. He doesn't just turn away from it. He looks at it. He sends his son. He makes his son our sin, gives him all the judgment we deserve, and we get all the, uh, the glory and love that he deserves. And that's the gospel. That's the woke truth. And secondly, what's holding us back, I think, is we don't understand that the law is ineffective as an operating system. It's ineffective. It doesn't work. There's something in us that says, well, it's got to work. You know, if I just come up with these rules and these regulations, and they can be incredible rules. If I just give my life to fighting the injustices of Memphis, that's a noble calling. 
If I give my life as a teacher, if I give my life as a lawyer, if I give my life as, uh, as a nurse, taking care of, you know, um, of those that can't take it. I mean, noble, noble causes. But when those things become a replacement for acceptance with God through the finished work of Christ, it's hollow, it's empty, it's ineffective. It, it cannot produce what we want produced and what we're after. Here's an illustration. Maybe it'll connect with some of us. I know there's at least one person in here running uh, the St. Jude uh, half at least, and maybe some of you marathoners in here. But there's two ways to run the St. Jude marathon or half marathon. You can run it for yourself or you can register as a, um, a St. Jude hero. And if you register as a St. Jude hero, then you're running for the kids of St. Jude. You're running for, and then there are these teams that actually single out patients. And I ran on one of those teams one year. And, and when you, there's a huge difference between running for a child who has um, cancer versus running for yourself trying to beat your own personal record. Uh, I've done it both ways. And I'm telling you, when I'm running the race, when I was running the race and I had the, a picture of the child, or at least the name of the child, on my, my T-shirt, it was, it, was it was a deeper motivation. There was this whole thing of, I'm going to get to the end of the race and we're going to dedicate this to this, this child who has cancer. We're not going to be holding over him in guilt. It's going to be a gift of love versus, and I've done this, I'm going to run to see how fast I can do it. That's all about me. Now, there's nothing. Come on. Take, I'm, take, I'm talking about spiritual terms, all right? So let's go there. Do you understand that when you're running for yourself, there's always condemnation because you can always do it better? Or you meet your pretty insignificant goals. My goal has always been I want to break a, you know, a 350 marathon. Can't do it, so I feel like a loser, you know? That, that's the game. That's the game. And so something in us is always saying performance matters. Performance is key. Obedience, holiness, it, it, it matters. And Paul is saying absolutely. But, but look at what he said in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism or harsh treatment of the body and severity of the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's not an issue of, oh, if I believe the grace of God, then I can just go sin and do whatever I want to. No, it's just the opposite. You see, when you believe in the grace and love of God, you can't go do whatever you want to do because you know you're now a debtor to grace. You know you're now, if, do you think our marriage has lasted 36 years because every time she, my wife does something for me, I, I just kind of go, oh, yeah, I deserve that, didn't I? <laughs> She would have been gone a long time ago. No, everything she does for me, I realize, man, it's grace. I don't deserve her love. That's how love works. It compels me to want to be better for her. You cannot love and do whatever you want to do. If you say you love, but you're not doing, that's, that's what it, you say you love God, but you hate your neighbor, you lie. Because love doesn't allow you to hate. Love is a better obedience. It is a better motivator. It is the imminent, preeminent 
um, um, motivation and operating system. Gospel Christianity brings real change, transformation, not just manipulation. The law as a grounds for making me feel good about me, having right standing, produces very selfish, guilt-ridden, and guilt-spreading Christians because there's no presence of love, only the hard edge of the law. You see, when, and we all vacillate between these two things. We, we vacillate to wanting justice for those that hurt us, wanting you know, um, um, punishment for those that hurt us. But, but that's what we want. A legalist wants control. But if Jesus lived, died, and rose to fully accomplish my acceptance with God, he is in control of me. I am now obligated to him. If God accepts me based on man-made rules, if I obey, there's nothing I can't ask him to do for me. You see, if I'm obeying my little rules, I'm going to never drink, smoke, or chew or go with girls that do. Here's my little rules. I'm going I'm to go, go to a multi-ethnic church. I'm going to do justice. I'm gonna, not going to be like the, you know, we're not going to sing these old traditional hymns and, and live under this. If that becomes my law as opposed to just the expression of my freedom in Christ, then, I, then when, God, when life doesn't work out, I look at God and say, hey, this isn't working. Hello, do you see me? D d I mean, come on, I'm doing everything you've asked me to do. So it, it's manipulation. But if I believe that I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and I know what I really deserve, but I really know what I've gotten in his love, then I don't see him as obligated to me. I see me as obligated to him. And if I'm going through suffering, I say, praise be to my God, because I know his heart. It was settled on the cross. I mean, that is a different, and I know what's coming. I know one day, someday, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And I know this old body is going to be made new. I know this bald spot may be filled in. <laughs> I know I might be able to run that 350 marathon and do it for his glory and bask in him, not my accomplishment. You see, there's a day coming. It's a beautiful day. Because my God reigns. He's not indebted to me. I'm indebted to him. The attraction of legalism, rules, and regulations is control. I can feel good about me by feeling good about me on the basis of my performance. But feeling good about me on the grounds of man-made laws will never result in loving you. Unless, of course, you obey my laws. But only until you break my laws. A legalist will expend extend a form of grace to himself but his true source of feeling good about himself is the inner and sometimes outer judgment of others how do you know if you're you've drifted into the, the world of legalism and law-oriented living let me just read this um, you typically have a pattern of not being able to find a church that meets your standards you come into a church and everything's good, or you think you're there, but you start picking. You've got your rules, you've got your laws, you've got your categories, and no church is going to fit into it. You create cliques, groups of small followers, disciples that listen to you, praise you, admire you, and build your ego over your special insight and knowledge that no one else has. You're critical of leadership, and that's in church, work, anywhere. You're critical of any leadership over you. This is how you survive. 
namely by setting yourself up as one who possesses the superior knowledge and righteousness, knowledge that you need to be stroked for possessing. Because you have the inside scoop, because you are so knowledgeable, the real story uh, no one else possesses, you are isolated. You don't have many friends, but you see yourself as bold and courageous for walking alone and making your stand, but you're really a coward and weak and unable to listen to critique, to look inside and see yourself as equally lacking as others. Your attention, your commitment, your energy energy must be focused on your self-made righteousness for which suffering the rejection of others feels like martyrdom when it's really just suffering for being self-righteous, narrow, and Christ-empty. Jesus called legalists twice as much the sons of hell, for they epitomized the elemental principles of this world while producing more sins of the flesh. You see, legalism doesn't work because it feeds my sense. I used to be the biggest legalist in the world for being reformed. This was before reform was cool. And I could feel really cool about that and good about that and self-righteous about that. It used to be kind of you're the outcast, but oh, did I wear it like a badge. Oh, you Arminian, you know. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter. It's just another stupid rule, you know. Oh, you people that disagree with me about women's ordination or sexuality. Oh, who are you? Oh. Dear friends, it's alive and a well in the church. Oh, my team is winning because my candidate's in the White House. Ooh, do, do you see the death in that? We are, folks, we are living the death of that. Literally living, historically, our, our historical context is living the result of the success of legalism. And we're killing people and nobody wants a Jesus that's like that. And I don't blame them. I don't want a Jesus that's like that. But Jesus is not like that. Thirdly, the gospel is power for transformation. I don't know if you saw College Game Day. I couldn't quit watching it last Saturday and got to, was blessed by somebody in the church with tickets to go to the game. And man, what a great, amazing game. U of M dominating SMU. And, but... Um, on College Game Day, they, they did a story about uh, Kenny Gainwell, Kenneth Gainwell, and his brother, Curtis Jr., his older brother, Curtis Jr. And Curtis um, Jr. was kind of the driving, they're three brothers, and, and they grew up in Yazoo County, Mississippi, and whew, uh, that's a tough, tough place, especially for an African-American uh, family. They lived in a um, trailer uh, mobile home, but every day... Uh, Curtis Jr. would get his brothers out there in the front yard and they would run those ladders and they would run those tires and they would throw that football and they would practice, practice, practice. And when Curtis Jr. Uh, went to college, he went to the University of uh, Southern Miss and he wanted to walk on. And he was um, on the football team and he was in the weight room one day um, lifting weights and he had a massive stroke and then it led to two other strokes and horrible brain breed and uh, paralyzed, I think on the right side, I, I couldn't remember, right or left side of his body and, and almost died, would have died if he didn't get to the hospital when he did. And, and so he is paralyzed and has to learn to walk and has to learn to talk again. And his brother, Kenneth, who plays now at the University of uh, Memphis and uh, I think has more rushing yards than anybody in the nation, uh, or at least was averaging 
more, at least last week, um, until that game last night, Alabama and LSU, maybe somebody else has got it, but uh, um, I digress. Uh, so <laughs> Kenneth, Kenneth said that he went to see his brother when he was in the hospital, and his brother told him to come in close, and he did, and he said, do you see my pain? Now you live out of it. And, and every game he plays, every, every play he makes, he has his brother in mind. He is living out of the sacrifice of his brother. He is living out of this love relationship of his brother. And love produces obedience by its very power. Do you want to know how to deal with the sins in your life? Thomas Chalmers said this, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection or an, an idol is the expulsive power of a new one. It's not enough. This is why it doesn't work. i got to stop sinning. I'm going I'm to resolve to do better. You, you resolve to do better, you, you, you do the same thing. It sounds counterintuitive. In the midst of your sin, what you need more than anything is not guilt and shame because that drives you deeper into your sin. What you need in the midst of your sin is to know that you have a God that loves you and is dancing over you through the work of Jesus Christ. That's power. Because all of a sudden, your heart does something. There's a switch in your heart when you're believing that reality. You go from believing I'm worthless, defining myself by my sin, to I am the most valuable thing on the planet because the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came down, and the Father sent him down, and the Spirit empowered him to come down to live, die, and rise for me, and I'm going to be in glory with him one day. It's so counterintuitive. I am committing the same. I can't quit this sin, and yet you love me. Do you see what is happening there? Guilt and shame wants to bring you down. The love of God wants to bring you up. And what Ch Thomas Chalmers is saying is until you are overwhelmed by the love of God, until his love has your heart, you're not going to stop that sin. The only power to get you out of that sin is the power of God's love over you in the midst simultaneously. I'm a sinner, but God loves me. and He can't love me any more than he does in this moment because of Jesus. And that kills my pride. It kills my flesh. There's nothing I can do to get God's love, but Jesus has done everything to secure God's love for me. And therefore, I choose his love and I walk this way. And I'm free, not on the basis of me, but on the basis of him. And that's a life that is worth living at that point. Tim Keller put it like this, until you're melted by the amazing sight, knowledge, and sense of Jesus taking the fire for you, you can't have the transformation of identity. You can't just decide, I think I'm going to change my identity. It can't be done. It has to be an experience of love. Dear friend, this morning, do you know how much God loves you? What is raging against that right now? You tell me, what is raging against? There is nobody in this room that can say, yes. There's something in all of us that's saying, uh, yeah, but. Maybe, uh, what is that pause? What is holding you back from believing it? That is what's killing you. Because, friends, the only way to live free, the only way to, to live under the Supreme Court justice declaration of your innocence and your righteousness 
The only way you're going to do that is if you look at what's holding you back and you say, no, no more. No more. You're not controlling me. Sin, you're not controlling me. Guilt, you're not controlling me. Shame, the love of God is going to control me. And friends, the only way to get that is to go to him. The only way to get that is to immerse yourself in his word. It's to immerse yourself into his music of, of the church. It's to immerse yourself with, with brothers and sisters around you who are not condemning you, but saying, brother, I just want you to know that God loves you. He has declared you righteous. He has declared you innocent. He has declared you his son. He's declared you his daughter. I know how you feel, but here's the truth. Do you have people in your life pulling you toward that love? Is that what we are as a church? Is that what you're hearing from up here week in and week out? Are you hearing that? That there's something greater than our suspicion. There's something greater than our guilt. There's something greater than our shame. You see, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. You know what that means? The righteous shall live by faith in what? In the sufficiency of the finished work of Jesus. The righteous will live by faith, not by determination to do better. But the law is not a faith, no. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That God might even love a Gentile. Hallelujah. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Dear friends, the spirit will meet us in our humility and our dependence upon him as we cry out to him. Oh God, release me from these laws. The laws that people are putting on me and the laws that I'm putting on myself. God, release me. Free me right now. Would that be your prayer this morning? That we might be a church that is freed to love God and love each other. That is freed to do what we do out of love and not duty and obligation. Pray with me. Well, God, we pray that you'd meet us by your spirit and that you would obliterate our guilt, that you would silence the voices out of our flesh right now that are saying to us, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. Oh, God, I pray that we would live today in the freedom and the love of all that you are for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. No one could make this up. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all you've done for us. We give you our hearts and souls. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen.